Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris Polito. Um, I'm the resident pastor here at Gospel Community Church. If you regularly attend, um, you probably know who I am. If you don't, I just wanted to introduce myself. So if you do attend Gospel Community Church, you've probably heard my story a little bit. But if you haven't, you get to hear a little bit of it today as it ties in with what I'm going to be preaching on this morning. Um, so uh I've struggled with uh, addiction for uh, quite a number of years, and um, I went back and forth from sobriety to addiction, but I'm going to talk about a time a few years ago when um, I went from uh, struggling with my addiction to getting sober and then kind of being uh, um, ambushed and caught off guard and, and falling right back into it. So back in 2009... Um, I was in Salt Lake City, and I had gotten myself in some trouble. I got myself in some trouble, and I landed up, landed myself in jail up there in, in Salt Lake County Jail. And during that time, there was a gentleman that used to come in and do a Bible study group. It was called Good News Bible Study, and his name was Paul. And he used to come in, and he used to uh, call the class out, and if we wanted to attend, we'd go in there, and he would just faithfully share God's word with us each and every week. Um, this, I would say, is, is kind of the, the, the place where the, the seed was planted for Christ to really kind of come into my life. And I ended up being there for um, quite a few months. And so I would spend once a week with Paul at his Bible study group. And then I'd spend a lot of time just reading scripture, studying scripture, praying, praying with others, studying the Bible with others. And it, it, I... I felt at that time that I had laid the foundation for my walk with God. So um, fast forward a little bit. Uh, I was released from jail. And when I got out, um, all of the pressures of the world had kind of, they were there and they were at the forefront and they, they were taking my focus. It was time to find a job, find an apartment, get a vehicle, and, and try and get my life back to what I called normal at the time. And, and things were going good. I was doing that. I had found me a, a good job and I would got me some transportation and I had found a place to live and I was, I was clean and sober and things were going well. And things were going so well that they were garnering my attention. They were garnering all of my focus. And um, I kind of had, had walked away from uh, that seed that had been planted. I had uh, not really been focusing on my relationship with God. And then kind of out of nowhere, um, boom, there I did. There it went. I relapsed. Um, and what it kind of reminded me of is something like, um, you know, those commercials you'll see on TV where, uh, the husband and wife are in the car and they're driving down the road and they're having a conversation and then boom, out of nowhere, a vehicle runs a stop sign and T-bones them and just, it's this crazy collision. That's what it kind of felt like to me. That's kind of what this relapse and that time that, uh, kind of took me back to an ugly place in my life felt like it was, I did not see it coming. Things were going so well, and boom, all of a sudden, I found myself 
back to where I'd worked so hard to get out of. So I'm gonna leave you right there. I'm gonna kinda leave a little cliffhanger and we're gonna get back to that. We're gonna come back to that story and I'll, I'll kinda show you how that relates to, to what we're, we're gonna be going over today. But um, before we jump any further into today's message or into God's word, would you guys join me with an opening prayer? Father God, we come to you this morning humble, grateful to be able to, to connect in whatever way we can, God. We know there, there, there's power in the name of Jesus, and we know that even though we are kept apart, even though we're in our own homes and not gathering as normal right there, there in the midst of each and every one of us is the same Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit power that rose Jesus from the grave. So Holy Spirit, be with us this morning. Soften our hearts, open our ears, cast away any distractions that are gonna try and pull us away from God's word, pull us away, pull us away from our message, pull us away from our study. Bring us to a place, a place of peace. Bring us to a place of uh, understanding as we dive deeper and deeper into your word. Give us hearts to receive the message. Jesus, it's in your beautiful name I pray, amen. So if you're just joining us or if you have been attending before church was kind of um, changed or you've been watching some of the last couple sermons online, you may know that we are um, in a sermon series kind of going line by line, verse by verse through the books of First and Second Peter. And today, we're kind of at a milestone point today. I'm going to walk us through all of chapter 5, and we're going to finish up 1 Peter and set the tone for beginning 2 Peter next week. And so, um, because we are doing a whole chapter, even though it's not uh, terribly long, it's 14 verses, but we are going to be doing the entire chapter. So for the sake of time this morning, instead of going through and reading it and then jumping back and, and unpacking it, we're just going to jump right into the line by line study and we're just going to start kind of breaking it down uh, verse by verse. And um, just something I want to mention and something I want to point out is that I know Every word of scripture is breathed by God for, for um, instruction and teaching. And there, uh, every word of scripture is so important. But I want to say that this morning as we're going through some of this, we're going to spend a little bit more time on certain areas of this chapter because um, I felt the Holy Spirit pulling me towards some of these areas that, that I could really relate to, that I could really um, have felt and experienced some, some verses that have got me through some things in my life. And I can, uh, I can take those experiences and I can use my testimony and I can share my testimony and I can use it to help teach God's word and help you relate to what's going on and what Peter's writing about here. So, um, like I said, we're just going to jump right in to the verse-by-verse -verse study, and then we'll kind of unpack it from there. <clears throat> so, starting in verse 1, verse 1 says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So right off the bat, we see that he says, the elders who are among you, I exhort you. 
And so he's sending out an exhortation. And all that is 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 a fancy biblical word for um, a strong encouragement, urging. So what he's saying here is to the elders that are among you, I'm going to urge you in this. I, I, I encourage you in this. And so we know that he is writing to a group of early Christians that are scattered due to persecutions. But we see here that, that even though they're scattered, even though it's the earliest of the church, the earliest of Christians, there are elders that have been appointed to take care and to, to shepherd and take care of, um, of these believers that are scattered. And so he's writing at this point to those elders that have been uh, kind of appointed over the Christians that he's writing to. And so um, the idea of elder came from the Jewish culture. And the word simply means, um, well, it, it speaks of maturity and wisdom that you would find in an older person. So they're king on the term elder that's speaking on that maturity and that wisdom of an older person. But for this application, for the application that, that it's used for here, it's, it's more the wisdom and the maturity than it is the age. So he goes on to say, I who I too am a fellow elder. So he, he greets them and he addresses them, but he also says, "Look, I am a fellow fellow elder as well." And we know that um, Peter is qualified to speak to them, to speak on this manner, because um, Peter was clearly uh, the the somewhat called leader of the original twelve disciples, and P- Peter clearly had a, a a leadership position among them. But he he's not going there right now. He's not going to say, I, 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 to the elders, I write you, I am the, the pope of the early church or the leader of the early church. He's not trying to place himself in, in a place of authority over them. He, he's trying to level the playing field. He's saying, look, I too am a fellow elder. And I think that's a great example because as, as we attend um, community groups or Bible studies or uh, we meet someone at our work or on our neighborhood and we start discipling them and, and taking them through God's word, um, it, it's an important thing to understand is to keep it on a level playing field. We don't ever want to want to feel like we are, are elevated above somebody else, and that that we're teaching them from a so from an elevated standpoint. Because I think at times it becomes intimidating, and it sometimes it, it with without humility and, and with pride being able to leak in. Sometimes having that elevated sense of self, it will build a wall. It'll build a wall between you and the person you're speaking with, and you won't really be able to dive fully into discipleship and and into God's word. Charles Spurgeon said it like this. It will always be our wisdom, dear friends, to put ourselves as much as we can into the position of those whom we address. It is a pity for anyone to ever seem to preach down to people. It is always better to be nearly as possible on the same level they are. So in the end of that, he says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So we're going back to verse one. And Peter says, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So we we see his qualifications here to speak on this because he's saying, look, I was a witness. 
I was a witness of Jesus' suffering and possibly, too, a witness of his crucifixion, though we don't, like, see that for sure. But he's saying to them, look, you guys, you guys are shepherds of, of the followers of Jesus, and you have to understand, I witnessed the suffering. I witnessed this. And it, it bears some weight. It bears some intimacy to come from somebody that, that's seen it firsthand. But then he says, not only did he say uh, as a witness to the sufferings, he's, he also says as a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. And what he, what he might be talking about here as a, a partaker and, and a witness of the glory that will be revealed is he could be referring to when he saw the transfiguration of Jesus. So we consider a couple things here when, when looking at this line. We consider um, that Peter did see the suffering and likely see the crucifixion too. He's saying, you're leaders of the people of Jesus Christ. He suffered and died, and I witnessed that. But when we, when we look at that, when we also consider the other side of that, it makes us think that there are, there are tons of people that witnessed the crucifixion of Christ, and it didn't affect them the way it affected Peter or other people who witnessed it with faith. There were, there were tons of people who witnessed the suffering in the crucifixion and they never seen the true meaning of it. They never seen the significance of what was going on. They saw the great sufferer be smeared with his own blood, but they never looked into his wounds with faith. Thousands of people saw the Savior die but they simply went on their way back to Jerusalem, pounding on their chest. They did not see it with eyes of faith. They saw the wounds. They saw the crucifix crucifixion, but they didn't understand the miraculous wonder that came with this special death. Um, going on to verses 2 and 3. Verses 2 and 3, he says, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So right here, he starts off by saying, Shepherd the flock of God. So he, he points out kind of the first aspect of leadership, telling them to shepherd the flock and he also points out whose flock it is. He doesn't say, shepherd your flock, shepherd your sheep. He says, shepherd the flock of God. And I think he uses this term because he's probably thinking back to when Jesus commissioned him in John chapter 21. Um, I'll read that for you here. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. It says, And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said this to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So this was, um, <coughs> this was a big moment for Peter. Um, he denied him three times, and now Jesus had come to him, and he, he's commissioned him. He, he, he's, he's restoring him in this time, and he's telling him, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend my sheep. A spiritual shepherd does this in two main ways. He feeds Jesus' sheep, and, and that's the thing that he kind of emphasized there. And another aspect of this is to tend the sheep. The tending of the sheep, it, it means protecting them, guiding them, nurturing them, caring for the sheep. The most important tool that a shepherd of God's flock can have when caring for the sheep is a heart like Jesus had. A heart willing to die for the flock. A heart willing to lay down their life for the flock. We see this in um, John chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Um, I'll read that one for you as well. We see the heart, and this is uh, Jesus teaching about being the good shepherd. John chapter 10, starting in 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. We can use that example of what it looks like to, to shepherd the flock of God. Having a heart that loves the sheep and is willing to lay down their life for them. So going on, he says, do this not by compulsion, but willingly. So he's saying, he's saying, don't do this if you're feeling forced into it. Don't, don't do this by compulsion. You should do this willingly. He says, God's people as shepherds love the sheep and want to save them want to serve them. And he's saying, you got to want to serve them. Don't do this out of compulsion and don't do it for dishonest gain, but do it eagerly. Spiritual shepherds should not shepherd the flock for dishonest gain. And how does the gain become dishonest when it becomes the motivation for doing it? You're not shepherding the flock of God because the Bible tells us to love God and love others. You're shepherding the flock of God because what can it do for you? What's in it for me? And he's saying, don't do this. The gain is dishonest because it's, it's the motive for, serving, for the uh, shepherds to serve. But he's saying, do it eagerly. And then he goes on to say, but don't doing it as being lords over the flock. Don't lord over them entrusted to you, but be examples to the flock. Shepherds shouldn't do their jobs as lords because the sheep do not belong to them. 
He's saying, it told us right in the beginning, shepherd the flock of God. He's saying, so don't lord over these sheep because they're not even your sheep. He says, the sheep are entrusted to you. Therefore, the shepherds are, they're serving by being examples, not dictators. That's how he says it. He says, serve eagerly being examples to the flock. One of the sobering facts about being an example and, and, and eagerly serving and being an, an example to the flock is we as pastors, whether we intend to or not, we are examples. And it's, it's crazy to see sometimes how you can see a congre congregation take on the shape or, or the personality of its pastor and sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad ways. And he's saying, look, these, these sheep are entrusted you. God has assigned the various portions of his precious possession to their personal care. The idea that God has assigned certain people to our care as elders or as pastors, it, it, it's a sobering fact to think about the, 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 in, the intricacy of the planning that went into God creating everything in the universe. Verse 4, he goes on to say, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of, crown of glory that does not fade away. So right here, he kind of points out, while you are shepherds, while you're shepherding the flock of God, he points out saying, when the chief shepherd appears. So Peter, he's reminding the shepherds in the church that they would answer to the chief shepherd. That while they are shepherds and they were working to uh, care for the flock of God, there is a chief shepherd, and that chief shepherd is Jesus. And, you, and there's going to be a day when, when you have to answer to him and you have to explain how you handled the sheep, and he's going to want to know what you did with his flock. It's important for shepherds and pastors to realize that as they lead Jesus' sheep, that he is the shepherd, he is the overseer. And in a sense, the, the Christian shepherd, it doesn't work for the sheep. The Christian shepherd works for the chief shepherd. How are you caring for his people? And he goes on to say, you will receive a, clown, a crown. <laughs> I keep saying clown. You will receive a crown of glory. Faithful shepherds are promised a crown of glory, but not like the crown of leaves given by the Olympic, given to the Olympic champions. He's saying this crown of glory that you will receive, it's not going to wither. It's not going to dry up. It's not going to fade away. It's going to last forever. And, and it, it's encouraging because crowns, they're not only for the shepherds, but they're for everyone who is faithful to Jesus and who did what he called them to do. And there, there were multiple examples of this in, in, throughout the Bible, but the one I want to point out is in James chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He goes on in, in um, <clears throat> verses 5 through 7, and he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. 
For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. So he started off the letter by addressing the elders, and now he, he kind of brings it around because he, he says, likewise, you younger people. So in, in the same way that he, he had an exhortation for the elders, now he has an exhortation for the young, younger people, and he's saying, um, look, submit yourself to your elders. Be humble. But in, say, in saying that and in seeing that, like he soon realizes that this application is to, is to all of them. It's to younger people. It's to elders. The word to be submissive to one another or be clothed with humility, in this sense, that applies to everyone. Clothed with humility. Humility is a demonstration of submission. Humility is the, the ability to put, uh, cheerfully put away our own agenda, our, our, our own wants and needs, and, and put it away for God's agenda, for God's glory. Even if God's glory is expressed through another person. And he said, yes, all of you. This means it's both for elders and youngers. A quote I re read says... Strive to serve each other. Let the pastors strive to serve the people and the people, the pastors, and let there be no contention. Again, right there, we're kind of seeing that uh, leveled playing field. We're seeing, be clothed with humility, not just because you're a pastor or not just because you're, you're a younger believer, but, but everybody in that be clothed with humility, the, the phrase be clothed translates to a rare word that's referred to a slave putting on an apron before serving. So that, that term be clothed, it, it's referring to that slave when they're getting ready to serve, when they're getting ready to, to do their job as being a servant of wrapping that apron around them. He's saying be clothed with humility. Be humble when you're serving. Um, we, we see that we've seen that example again from Jesus when he was washing the disciples' feet in John 13:4. It says he rose up from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Clothe yourself with humility. So, what are some of the marks of humility? Uh, I, I listed a few here. Um, th there are more. But I wanted us to, to recognize and point out what are some of the marks of humility. One is being the willingness to perform the lowest possible task. And when you think of that um, at, at your job or um, if you're serving at a church, whatever it is, if, if you want to walk right to the front, right to the important job and um, you'll bypass that, that full uh, garbage can or that full trash bag that could be taken out and you're going to bypass that and you want to do the uh, important job, are you showing any marks of humility? The second one is consciousness of our own inability to do anything apart from God. 
when things are going bad, when things are rough, we'll hit our knees and we pray and we say, why, God? Well, why am I going through this? But when, when the coin is flipped over and things are going well, it's kind of like, yeah, me. Uh, I, I'm pretty awesome. I got this. I'm nailing this. I'm a rock star. If you have that mindset, are you showing the marks of being clothed with humility? The inability to do anything apart from God and being conscious of that. Um, third is the willingness to be ignored by others. We live, in a, we live in a day and age, we live in a time in this world when everybody wants to be heard. Everybody has a voice. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody wants to shout things from the rooftops and they want a crowd of people gathered below cheering them. But to be okay, to be willing to be ignored by others, it shows a humility. It shows a humility that, that you've humbled yourself and that you can, you can remain quiet and you don't have to be heard by others. And fourth, um, this one is not so much as self-hating or uh, a depreciation of yourself as it is being truly others-centered, not self-centered. So uh, I'm not saying to uh, not care for yourself at all, to not um, to, to develop a hatred for yourself, not to, to care about yourself personally, but to care about others, to be, to be focused on what's going on in the lives of those around you, to, to be truly pained when someone in your life is going through a tough time, to be, to be right there by them, whether good or bad, to be truly other-centered. That's another mark of humility. And then he, he goes on and he says in there, he says, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter here, he's saying, um, he's quoting Proverbs uh, chapter three, verse 34. And he's saying, humility is essential to our relationship with God. If we want to live in God's grace, if we want to live in God's unmerited favor, then, then we must lay aside our pride and humble ourselves. Not only to him, not only humble ourselves to God, but, but to those around us, those in our lives. Um, one of the things we know we kind of see here is like grace and pride are eternal enemies. Pride demands that, that God bless me in light of what I think I deserve. And grace deals with me on the basis that's in God. It's in what God thinks I deserve. It has nothing to do with me. There's no basis for myself. Um, an interesting quote I read from Charles Spurgeon says, if you're willing to be nothing, God will make something of you. The way to the top of the ladder is to begin at the lowest rung. In fact, in the church of God, the way up is to go down. But he that is ambitious to be at the top will find himself before long at the bottom. He goes on, can, um, Peter continues in this verse that we're reading to say that he may exalt you in due time. If God has humbled us, if he's humbled us at a place in the present time where we must submit to his plan, he's saying he's going to exalt you 
in due time and in God's time, in his timing. Uh, and he's pretty good at timing things out. Um, I've experienced that. I'm kind of experiencing it right now. Um, there's been a void in my life for, for a very long time on a, a relationship that I could have did a lot more to, to be a part of, and um, I didn't do that. But I've been praying, and I've been praying incessantly about some, a possibility of restitution in this relationship. And in due time, it's happening. God, God's showing me some things as of the last uh, few days that, that's showing me um, his faithfulness. And, and I'm excited about that. Um, we, we so often think that we know the timing. We know what we need, when we need it, way better than, than God knows. And Peter's saying, no, look, he's going to exalt you in due time. Um, and then he goes on to say, casting all your cares upon him. Um, I don't know if, if there's anybody out there watching this morning that, that likes to fish. Um, maybe you can understand this in, in that terms. Let's, let's look at it through a fishing aspect. It's, he's saying true humility is shown by our ability to cast our cares upon God. So if you fish, if you understand what goes into fishing, you know to, to be able to cast, catch a fish, you got to cast your bait out into the water. You know that you can't, uh, you're not going to probably catch that many fish if you, if you uh, bait your hook and you get ready and you, you go and you, you gracefully lay your, your bait into the edge of the water. You're going to be sitting there a long time and get a mighty sunburn. You cast your bait. If you're, if you're on a lake, you're fishing from the shore, you cast it fiercely and, and as far away from you as you can. You cast it out into the lake. And he's saying all your cares, all your worries, all of the things you're going through, all of the things are getting in the way of, of being clothed with humility, of, of wanting things done in your time instead of waiting to be exalted in due time. He's saying cast those cares upon the Lord. Um, I'm going to go back to Charles Spurgeon uh, again. I, I got quite a few uh, quotes from him that really went with what we were going through. Um, he used this illustration of casting your cares upon uh, God as um, a man who came to move your furniture. A gentleman was hired to come to your home and move your furniture. And with him, when he arrived... Excuse me. He carried a, a, a very heavy backpack loaded with a lot of weight. And the entire time he was moving your furniture, he was complaining that it was too much to bear with the backpack on. And what he's saying is, wouldn't it have been much easier to, to come and to move the furniture if he was to, to cast his cares or shed his backpack or, or take the weight from him? And he's saying, and, and take on uh, uh, Christ's burden. Take on the burden which is light, the yoke that fits perfectly. Don't wear those ones of your own. And he wraps this verse up by saying, for he cares for you. One of the thing, interesting things I read, it said, at the best moments, the religions of ancient Greek culture could barely imagine a God who was good. Yet they never came to a place where they believed in a God who cares. The God of the Bible, the God who is really there, the God who is, is, is with us today, 
He cares. He cares about me. He cares about you. He goes on in um, verses 8 and 9 as we keep moving forward. He says, Peter writes, Be sober-minded. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the face, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Remember that story I told you in the beginning about getting sober and, and things were going good and then being overtaken again by my addiction? I told you we'd, we'd come back to that and we would revisit that. And, and this verse right here is something I hold on to and I hold dearly to my heart. And, and this is what happened. I let my guard down. I was sober, but I wasn't sober-minded. I was influenced by, I was distracted by the job, the car, the, the things of the world that I needed. I was not sober-minded. I was keeping my mind on the, the immediate needs, the things of the world, and I wasn't keeping my, my, my heart and my mind connected to the spiritual things, to, to the things of God. Um, so I used the analogy a little earlier of the commercial of the husband and wife in the car and, and getting T-boned and collided, but with our scripture that we read today, be sober-minded, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking, excuse me, seeking whom he may devour. So I, I kind of want to paint the picture on what that relapse looked like in my life in correlation with these scriptures. So um, I'm going to kind of explain to you how it probably went down. I want you to maybe picture this in your best uh, Steve Irwin crocodile hunter voice. It went something like this. With relatively small hearts and lungs, lions are not fast runners. A maximum of 60 kilometers per hour, nor do they have the stamina to keep pace for more than 100 to 200 meters. As such, lions rely on stalking their prey and seldom charge until they're within 30 meters unless the prey is distracted and facing away from them and cannot see the charge. Lions stalk their prey. Although ambush behavior has been observed, this mainly happens in the daylight when stalking becomes more difficult. But at night, once within range of the smaller prey, lions use their paws to slap at the rear of the animal at its legs or its haunch to knock it off balance and drag it down, followed by a bite to the neck or the throat, and it quickly kills the animal. With larger prey, lions approach the animal at an angle, jumping on top, using their own weight to wrestle the animal to the ground, biting at the vertebrae in an attempt to sever the spinal cord as they do so. Once down, they bite the throat or over the nose and mouth of the prey in an attempt to suffocate it. I wasn't vigilant. I wasn't sober-minded. And, and the, the, the adversary, my enemy, that was stalking along like, a, like a, a, a lion on the prowl roaming, he waited for the right moment. 
He waited for the right moment. And when you picture this um, scene from uh, the wilderness, when you picture this scene that you maybe have seen on television sometime, everything looks good. You see the gazelle or the zebra, they're out there and they're, they're eating they're out there feeding in this, uh, this golden uh, field of food. You see a, uh, a pond off in the distance. Maybe they're at the edge of the pond and, and they're drinking some water. And the water's calm. They're, they're quenching their thirst. They're taken by food and water and, and the needs that they, they have to survive. And just off in the distance crouched down, coming through the weeds, th that lion coming to kill. Um, I want you, I want to urge you guys, I want, I want to urge you to, to be sober-minded and be vigilant in your spiritual walk, to be aware of the adversary that's prowling and trying to come into your life, what, what, whatever tricks he tries to use, whether he tries to, to lead you into a place of anxiety or depression, whatever it is. Stay vigilant, stay connected, stay with the good shepherd, stay in God's word, stay in prayer, stay in communication and communion with fellow believers, stay sober-minded. For some Christians, that, that roaring lion, Satan is the lion, but... He's the lion that's been defanged at the cross. His power has been taken away. Yet the sound of his roar, his deceptive lies, all these things he uses, they're still potent. He still uses them to distract us, but he's been defanged at the cross. He's been defeated. He hasn't been yet bound and, and restrained for a thousand years like it, like it mentions in Revelations. That hasn't came, but his fangs have been removed. We see in this verse that Satan's goal is to seek whom he may devour. He isn't just looking to, to lick or nibble on his prey. He wants to devour us. He wants to overtake us. And he can never be content until he sees the believer utterly devoured. He would rend him in pieces and break him his bones and destroy him if he could. But do not therefore indulge in the thought that the main purpose of Satan is to make you miserable. He's pleased with that. He's pleased with the stress and the anxiety and the miserable, but his intent, his focus is to break you down. That's what he wants in his ultimate end. And Peter's writing here, he's saying, resist him. Resist him by being steadfast in the faith. The secret of spiritual warfare is simple. Steadfast resistance. As, we, as we're steadfast in the faith and we, and we resist the devil and the threats of intimidation that comes with him, we put up a battle. It makes it tougher. We got, we got our head on a swivel. The stalking becomes more difficult. The, the uh, surprise attack, the pouncing becomes more difficult. This word resist, it comes from the ancient, two ancient Greek words that mean stand against. So, so this, um, this word resist that he's using, it, it's two words combined, stand against. And when you, when you stand against 
Look, I, I, I back up. I back up to this wall. Nothing's getting me from behind. Nothing's going to sneak up from behind me and get me. He's saying, stand against God. Resist. Steadfast in the faith. Stand back up against God. Don't be surprised. I know that Satan, he gets discouraged every time he tries to attack and he sees that his attacks have, uh, they don't have the effects they once did. They send us running, but they send us running to God. They send us running to Christ. They send us running to the cross. Those, those types of attacks, that response from Satan, it's discouraging. Then we go on to verse um, 10 and 11. He says, But may God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He says, he's saying right off the bat, may the God of all grace perfect you, establish you, strengthen you, settle you. Knowing the suffering and the danger that the Christians are in, Peter can only, he can only conclude his letter in, in, in one way that would really bring comfort and really make some sense. He concludes, he's, he's wrapping up, concluding it with prayer. He asked God to do his work. He's saying, God, do your work of perfecting these people. Do your work of establishing these people. Do your work of strengthening, strengthening these people. Do your work of settling these people. After you've suffered a while, <laughs> he goes on. After this, this beautiful prayer of, of, of strengthening and establishing, he says to them, but after you've suffered a while, we almost want to ask him in this in instant, Peter, Peter, why did you say that? But the truth remains, we are only called to his eternal glory after, after we've suffered for a while. We wish that we were called to his glory on the, the no suffering plan, that, that everything was um, glitter and rainbows and we didn't ever have to go in, through anything. But that doesn't do any good. The suffering, the things we face, the suffering, it's what God uses to establish us, perfect us, strengthen us, settle us. And then he goes on and he says, we're called us to his eternal glory. But, but what does this eternal glory entail? What does this eternal glory look like? It, it's, the, it's the glory of purified character. It's the glory of a, a more perfected humanity. It's the glory of complete victory in Jesus' name. It's the glory of being honored by the king of the universe. It's the glory of reflecting the glory of God to those around us. It's the glory of immediate, constant presence of God in our lives. It's the glory of enjoying the relationship with God himself. He says, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever Amen. The God who can do this great work in our lives certainly 
worthy of our praise. And that's how we see Peter, he, he's winding down uh, this chapter in, in, in this letter of 1 Peter, and, and he's, he's told them all of these things. He's told them the wonder and the glory of God, and he shows them he's certainly deserving of, of our glory and praise. And then he concludes the letter by saying, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, which, which you stand. So she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> So what I want to do is I, I, I want to wrap up today's message with uh, um, a few questions. A few questions that after reading these verses and studying them and going through them, that we should be kind of tempted to ask ourselves. We should be prompted to ask ourselves. One, number one being, are, are we really humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time. Are, are you really clothing yourself in humility, clothing yourself as a servant, clothing yourself to do the, the lowest of tasks? Are we humbling ourselves, not for, not, not for ourselves, <clears throat> not for anything um, by our own strength, not anything on our own power? Are we humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due time. Spend some time this week thinking about that. Spend some time this week praying about that. Take a look introspectively at your life and ask yourself that multiple times. Are you humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time? The second question I want us to kind of look at and ask ourselves, if so, is it leading you to cast your cares upon him? Is that humility and being, being at peace and at rest and comfortable with what God is doing in your life, is that leading you to a place of humility where you are ready to cast all the cares of the world, all of the cares that you carry with you upon him? And um, when, I, when I went over those verses and went through that, I used the analogy uh, of fishing, of casting your bait out into the water. But church, I urge you, I urge you, when you cast these cares upon the Lord, set the pole down and walk away. Move along. Never to be reeled in, never to be pulled back to you again. Cast them at God once and for all and walk away. The worries, the anxieties, the stresses, the, the depression, the, the financial burdens, the things of this world that are weighing you down, the things that you're stuffing in that backpack that Charles Spurgeon spoke about in that um, example I used, cast those things away to never come back into your life, to never be bothered again. Those, those things were nailed to the cross. Those things were handled. Christ done that for you. And the last thing, the last thing that I really um, urge you 
to ask yourself and to um, really take some time this week and look at and, and really think about it and understand it and, and be honest with yourself is, are you sober-minded, vigilant, and resisting in the faith? Because you're being stopped. Satan wants to pounce. But, but like, the, like the text said, resist. Be more prayerful every time. Be more active. Be more prayerful every time Satan is more active. And he soon will give up that when he finds that every time he tries to pounce, he drives you back to the cross. He drives you back to Christ. Um, so I want to thank you guys for joining us this morning um, in our regular service. We go into what we call the four ways right now, which would be um, we pray, we take communion, we sing, and we give. So even though we're kept apart, I urge you guys to, to still do these things. As uh, some music comes on at the end of this video, uh, I praise you to stand up. I encourage you, grab your family, raise your hand in the air, and praise the mighty name of God. We've seen in this text, he deserves that. He deserves our praise. When you're finished, if you have some juice and some bread, gather the elements, sit down at your table, spend some time thanking Jesus for shedding his blood for your sins. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing his body to be broken to, so the veil could be torn and we could be reunited with God. Commune with him. Prayer. prayer. Prayer is so important. You need prayer. I need prayer. We, we, we should be praying together. We do that in multiple ways. There's an online prayer group on Mondays. I, uh, if you need some prayer, you can hop on there. Feel free to, to message us on our church Facebook page. To comment on this video. If there's anything you, have, you um, have some prayer requests for and need prayer for, please reach out to us in, in some way or another and let us know. If you um, want to keep your request more private, like I said, go to Gospel Community Church Facebook page, click message, and you, you will send us a direct message. Or if you want multiple people praying for you, everyone that's watching this video, they may see your request and they may take to their knees and pray for you right there in that as well. And give. Um, even though the church doors are closed, um, the lights are still on, as you can see, we still have uh, um, things, needs that are being taken care of for the church itself, but we also want to be able to take care of the needs of our friends and our family. So um, we have online giving available. If you would like to, to pay your uh, tithing through uh, the online platform, you could go to gospelcc.net, click on the tab, and you can see down below where it says give. And then that way, it, uh, we put ourselves in a position to be able to give back to our community as uh, we go through this tough time. So I thank Thank you guys for joining me this morning. Um, I wish you guys uh, a very blessed week. Um, stay connected, stay in God's word, stay in prayer. Join me as I close uh, with a closing prayer. Uh, Father God, we're so grateful to be able to, to come together this morning, to, to have your word to study, to be able to um, use your word to be uh, warned about the adversary who is, who is stalking us. 
to have a faith to stand steadfast in, to be able to resist the temptation, to resist the attacks, and be drawn up into your ever-loving arms. God, I pray for our church. I pray for our friends and family. I pray for our community, our state, our nation, with all that's going on right now, God. I lay them at your feet. I cast the cares of this world upon you, God. You know the beginning, you knew this was coming, and you know the outcome. Let us find peace, let us find rest in that. It's in your beautiful name I pray, amen. Thank you guys, have a blessed week.